You can turn in your Bibles tonight to Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2. That's going to be our text for this evening. Uh, We have been going through the pastoral epistles here on Sunday nights for quite a while. We've made it through all of 1 Timothy, and we covered several weeks ago, um, actually, all of Titus. We kind of overviewed each chapter individually and just kind of brought home what Paul is trying to do through this letter. But I was circling back and reading through Titus chapter 2, and I was just struck by the verses that I want to cover tonight, which, uh, believe it or not, actually feel very relevant to the Christmas season. Uh, We don't often go to Titus 2 for uh, a Christmas reading of Scripture, so to speak, but I think there's some verses in here uh, that are so profound, and I think they they speak to uh, both the central message of Christmas... The reason for the season, so to speak. Um, But I also think they speak to the central sort of message and point of the Christian life, too. Uh, And so these verses that we will see, uh, I think, are very important for us to grasp, for us to understand, for us to take to heart as well. So I hope you will do that with me uh, tonight. Paul, as we've seen before, uh, spends the majority of the time in this letter to Titus uh, demonstrating, articulating, um, and showing him how this gospel of grace changes the lives of those that uh, it comes to. Obviously, we looked at this a couple of weeks, several weeks ago. Uh, Titus is ministering on this island of Crete, and the natives there are people who are very rough. They are gruff people, and yet he is adamant that this gospel can change their hearts, change their lives, change their behaviors. And he's so adamant about it that he is doubling down on that gospel of grace throughout this letter. And he's seeking that Titus... Uh, preach this same message. This message that the redeemed, the, the, those that are redeemed by grace are changed by grace too. The ones who are saved by this grace that comes to them are made to act and walk and talk and live like that is a true thing. Like that is a reality. And this is in contrast right away to what who, who Paul describes in verse 16 of chapter 1. Look at it quickly. He says, They profess That they know God, but in works they deny Him, being abominable and disobedient, and unto every good work reprobate. He is contrasting throughout this letter those who say that they love God and pretend that they love God, but through their actions, their words, everything about them, they actually functionally deny Him. They, They actually prove that they do not know Him. They pretend to know the truth. But they deny it by how they live. And such a lifestyle, a lifestyle of denying the truth by by not living for it is totally inconsistent with the sound doctrine that Paul spends so much of his time seeking to impart to this young man, Titus. Rather, Rather than just professing the truth and then denying it by how they live. In contrast to that verse, Paul is going to say here in verse 10 of chapter 2. We who are saved by grace, we should show all good fidelity. Look what he says. Verse 10. Not purloining, but showing all good fidelity that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. Adorn the doctrine of God. When you live 
for the truth, when you are living as you ought to live as a Christian in this life, you are adorning, you are accentuating, you are uh, demonstrating in a reality that in all things that this faith that you have is real. That it changes you. That it's something that is inside of you and that it functionally changes everything about you. And this is the lifestyle that he seeks to impart, not just to Titus, but to Titus's church as well. And I think also us now reading it 2,000 odd years later, it's, he's seeking to impart it to us too. That the lifestyle that we are called to is a lifestyle such that adorns the doctrine of God. Adorn there means embellish or garnish or demonstrate. You're displaying by how you live that this gospel of grace, you believe that it is true. That you believe that it is your only hope and the truth by which you will uh, live your entire life. And I think nothing brings God more honor than this type of living. Adorning the doctrine of God by how we live. I think that's our calling. That's our responsibility. Everyone here in church tonight, this is your calling. If you want to know how you ought to live, verse 10. Adorn the doctrine of God in all things. He's going to show us how that's done. But I think most important, sort of the crux of this text, I think, is where Paul derives or where he finds that responsibility. What propels him to live this way? And what propels him to uh, make sure that Titus is preaching and also discipling others in this way? And what, what we might even ask too, what propels us to live this way? What's the motive to live as if we are trying to adorn this doctrine of God in all things? He affirms that it's nothing else, nothing more than verse 11, that the grace of of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men. He affirms that the, the, the driving force for a life of faithful adoration of Christ is nothing less than the incarnation of Christ himself here in this life. Grace hath Appeared. It says, the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men. He's clearly, in my mind, referencing the incarnation. Christ coming as a babe. Christ appearing. Christ visiting us. Grace here is on the scene. Appeared is actually a word that means to show or to bring to light, to, to become visible, so to speak. And it's striking to me because it's the same, let me, I'll just flip there, you can write it down. It's the same word that appears in Zechariah's prayer from Luke chapter 1, verses 78 and 79. Listen, he says this. Through the tender mercy of our God, whereby the day spring from on high hath visited us, to give light to them that sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. This is coming near the end of his prayer. He's praying over John the Baptist, and he's praying and asserting and saying that you will be sort of the harbinger, the one who will go before this one who is the day spring, the one who has visited us. And he says there in verse 79, to give light, that's the same word, appearing, 
The light that appears is this grace that hath appeared. And it brings salvation down to earth. This is where we can see this. It's the mission of grace then. It's the mission of grace to lead us out of darkness into God's glorious light. It comes to us in darkness and it brings us out of it. And this is what Paul is getting at here in Titus 2. He's getting at that this this incarnation of Christ, this uh, incredible miracle of God becoming flesh, this is the propelling force for uh, a life of faithful adoration. It's not coercion into good works. It's not forced behavior. It's the result of grace. The first Noel, we might, so to, might say, the first appearing... We, us, going back to that, hearkening back to that, remembering it, recollecting it, that is what informs us how to live this life of adorning the doctrine of God. And here we see in this text, in verses 10 through 14 actually, I think we see three lessons here that inform us how we are made to demonstrate this faith that is in us and how it all goes back to that seminal event here that we have read about even this morning in Luke chapter 2. But first of all, look at verse 11 again. Because here I think we see a lesson about our grateful recognition. Look at what he says. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men. It's an incredible verse. I think there's two incredible, actually just astounding ideas that Paul just affirms here right off the bat. He doesn't try and give them any sort of provisos or qualifiers. He doesn't try to define them. He just says this is what it is. This is how it is. The first is that grace appears to us and also that grace appears to all. To all men. Grace comes to where you are. But also grace comes to where everyone is. Which is uh, an astounding thing to recognize. This fact that grace appears to us. I believe is contrary to many of the, um, uh, of the accepted. Sort of the, the popular religious systems in the world. It's unlike any other faith system. This idea that grace comes down. It comes to us. That God would demean himself in such a way that he becomes part of his creation. Nearly every other world system of religion operates in a framework, in an idea of, of the person who needs saving, working, growing, advancing, increasing in spirituality. Me doing something. Me working, striving to quote unquote get better. Increase my spiritual awareness. Increase my spiritual or religious activity. And then that advancement in religiosity so to speak is what brings you closer to God. And brings God closer to you. Or whatever deity that is being affirmed. But the, the whole point of it is, if you boil down any other religious system, it always, almost always comes back to a program of this. Be good, be better even, and you will be rewarded. 
All of the onus is on you. All of the emphasis and the pressure is on you to make sure that you are getting better in order to ascend where whatever paradise that you're trying to ascend to. All of that lies out in the distance and you have to struggle and work and strive and expend uh, copious amounts of blood, sweat and tears in order to win it, to achieve it, to even see it. And here, right off the bat, in a couple of words, Paul just eradicates that entire idea. Salvation is not sort of the carrot at the end of the stick that we are all running after and we're striving to get there. He says here, the grace that bringeth salvation has appeared to us. It has come to us. It has come down and descended to the depths of our low estates. And it is now here with us. It is dwelling with us. The word of God, as it says in John chapter 1, dwelt among us. This is the doctrine of God, our Savior. It's altogether different than any other religious system. Because it it asserts that God has never demanded, and he will never demand, that we crawl or climb to get to him. Actually, it's a verifiable fact that he has come to redeem us. He has come and made himself a part of our world in order to make us a part of his heavenly heavenly mansion. And this is God's method of salvation. God's method of redemption. He doesn't operate according to sort of ascending scales of spirituality or religiosity. Rather, God has come to us. This is the fact. Those three words, grace has come, or four words, grace has come down. That alone ought to make us rejoice. That alone ought to make us sing and shout for joy. That God himself has made himself a part of this world. He has made himself a part of all of our fractured existence. You know when you stumble and stub your toe in the night? (laughs) Jesus has done that too. When you feel frustrated, Jesus has felt frustrated too. When you get dirt under your fingernails, Jesus has gotten dirt under his fingernails too. He has become in every way like us, yet without sin, that he might redeem us from sin, being our perfect king and substitute and advocate. This is Jesus, our king, a king unlike any other king we could ever imagine. He has appeared to us and he is bringing salvation in his hands, salvation for free, salvation at no cost to us, but at all the cost to him. It's unlike any other message we have ever heard. And my friends, this is what differentiates the Christian faith from any other system in the world. And it's why we can champion it. It's why we can shout it from the rooftops. Because we know that it is true. It's a message that Paul relayed to Titus. And it's a message that we relay today. It's that idea that Paul elsewhere speaks of. In Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy 3 where he talks about the mystery of faith. The mystery of godliness. It's this very thing. That (coughs) grace hath appeared. It's come on the scene. It's come on the scene in the form of a man. 
A man who got up and sweat. A man who worked. A man who strove. A man who stumbled. A man who felt sorrow. A man who cried. A man who died. And at the same time that this man that we know and we cherish and we believe in, he was also God. He was the Lord of the universe at the very same time. And this Lord of the universe became part of the very universe that he created to die for the very people that rejected him. Grace has appeared. You want to live a life adorning the doctrine of God, it stems from this grateful recognition of the fact that grace has come to you. It's come down. But also, likewise, the other fact here in this verse is that not only has it come to you, it has come to all. Notice again, it hath appeared to all men. It's a stirring phrase. It reminds me, let me read those verses from 1 Timothy chapter 2. Very similarly, Paul writes in verse 5 of 1 Timothy 2, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. This is who Jesus is. Paul is adamant about this fact. That this grace that has come down, this grace that has come for us, has come for all peoples. He has come and given himself as the ransom for every man. Not just some men, not this secluded sect of men, not not these only certain individuals. He has come for the world. He has died for the world, being the ransom for all men. This is what this incarnation reveals. That this salvation has come. It's a definitive, declarative fact. And this is the indescribable gift that Paul elsewhere writes in 2 Corinthians. It's the unspeakable gift of the gospel. And again, we'll say this. This is not to sort of lean into any sort of universalistic doctrine. Just because... This grace has appeared to all men does not imply that all men will accept it. Which is the the very sad and unfortunate truth of this message. The most devastating reality of all life, I think, is that this unspeakable gift of Jesus himself coming to us, dying for those very people that spit upon him, that very gift will be left unopened. How many of you, if you remember growing up and you had Christmas gifts galore under the Christmas tree, how many of you left a gift unwrapped under that Christmas tree? (laughs) I I very hasten to say probably not. I remember when I grew up, if there was one unwrapped, you better be sure we were going to make sure it was unwrapped. (laughs) Even if it wasn't for us, (laughs) we were going to unwrap it. We don't leave any gifts unwrapped under the Christmas tree, so to speak. But the sad reality is, if I may be so bold... Many people in this life leave the unspeakable gift of the gospel unopened. They leave it unopened, perfectly wrapped for them under a different tree. (laughs) They leave it there. Even though Jesus has given it to them already. He says, here, have it. And yet they go and they hasten into hell, leaving it unopened. 
when Jesus has already assured them, I am your ransom. I have appeared and brought salvation with me by the grace that I am. And they leave that gift all, all alone, all unopened. And I think this is the sad, unthinkable reality. Again, which ought to propel us to adorn this doctrine of God. That there is no one, there is no one outside of the scope of this appearance of the grace that brings salvation. Everyone can have a share. Everyone can have a part in it. And there are many who are rejecting it, who are leaving it unopened. Bound in the body of this little infant that we are going to read about or in Luke chapter 2 or that we have read about. Bound in the body of that infant was the universal potential for every man, woman, and child to be redeemed. In his blood, salvation has appeared for every man. Has appeared for all. This to me is the startling startling reality. And I have to gratefully recognize that fact. That he has appeared to us. He has appeared to all. But notice verses 12 through 14. Because I think secondly, our second lesson. We have a lesson about our thankful realization. Look at verse. Well let me jump back to verse 10. Notice what Paul says here. Not purloining, but showing all good fidelity that they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior, in all things. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, That he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. Here Paul is explaining how this life of adorning, of demonstrating the doctrine of God stems from this grace that comes to us. He says here that this grace that appears, notice what he says, what it does. He says in verse 12, it teaches us. That denying ungodliness and worldliness, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly. This grace that comes, it admonishes, it trains, it teaches, it instructs us. This is what it does. This is what the message of grace does. This is an active thing in our lives. Teaches, purifies, verse 14. It propels, it stirs us to zealously pursue good works. And I think these verses right here, verses 11 through 14, I think are the most significant passages which disprove the idea that it doesn't matter what you do because grace is here. There's a strand of of churches and of preachers today who mistakenly believe that because grace is here, you can do whatever you please and it doesn't really matter how you live. Which justifies a lot of unseen, unseemly things, I think. They have taken this doctrine of free grace to a place which Christ never intended. Into a place where Paul spent countless letters and time devoted to dismantling. 
And some have falsely believed that because grace is always free and it always forgive, which it is and which it does, by the way, they are free to live however they please, which is adamantly false. And he refutes, Paul refutes that thinking so well here in this text. Because he says, that type of lifestyle, listen to his words. Go back to verse 16 of chapter 1. They profess that they know God, but in works they deny him. And they are, he says, being abominable and disobedient and unto every good work reprobate. Do you think he had a good view of those sort of people who thought that they knew about the grace of God but denied it by how they lived? He says, you are abominable to God. You pretend that you know what the truth is, but you have no idea what it means or what it does because you haven't let it, done, haven't let it do its work in you. You are abominable to this God that you pretend to know, that you profess to believe. Again, grace is an active thing in our lives. It stirs us, it moves us, it teaches us, it instructs us. And such is what we are made to realize with abundant thankfulness here. That our adorning of this doctrine of God is not what makes Him love us. It's the fruit of His love, which He has loved us by once and for all, appearing to us. It goes back to the incarnation once again. That he has loved us first. Going back to 1 John chapter 4. Not that we have loved God, but that he has loved us. You want to know how you can know someone that knows this truth? They will be known by their love. And there's no one who is more free to love than knowing that they have the love of the Father first. This, I think... Is what we are made to thankfully realize. That the propelling, propelling force of the gospel is this first love of God. And the appearance of grace. These good works, as he says in verse 14, that we are made to zealously live for. They do not in any way achieve or merit or win salvation for us. They adorn the salvation we've already been given. They accentuate it. They attest to how marvelously this God works in our life. They show how this God who saves sinners can remake sinners into his people. And this is where we come to. This grace that appears to all, it leaves us with two responses. We can beautify this grace. We can adorn the doctrine of this God, our Savior, or we can blaspheme it. And he says, living for the truth, adorning God by living soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, that's what adorns, what beautifies the doctrine of God. Or you can blaspheme it by saying that you believe in it and then denying it by how you live. It's a cliche phrase you've probably heard. I think it was, it's always attributed to D.L. Moody. That you might be the only Bible some folks ever read. I think it's true in many cases. Many times there, won't be, there will be, might be a person around you who never cracks open the pages of Scripture. But we can show him the Scriptures just by how we live. 
And no, we cannot save men by just living soberly, by just living righteously. Paul says in Romans chapter 10, I believe it is, that they will not be saved unless they hear the good news. They can't just see it, they have to hear it professed to them. They can see something is different for sure. But I think, again, there's nothing that draws men to God than seeing how God has drawn men to himself. Such is what adorns the doctrine of God. Listen to this passage by the preacher Alexander McLaren because he writes on this so excellently. He says, your lives, professing Christians, are not neutral in their effect upon men's estimate of your creed. Either you attract or repel. Either you make men think better of God's truth or you make them think worse of it. There are no worse enemies of the gospel than its inconsistent friends. You will be of very little use if your Christian principle is so buried in your life, embedded beneath a mass of selfishness and worldliness and indifference as that it takes a microscope and a week's looking for to find it. (laughs) I pray that I don't have the type of creed that it takes a microscope to see it. I pray that people can just look at me and know that man smells like Jesus. He acts like Jesus. A Jesus that I want to get to know. This is our thankful realization that our works do not achieve. They only adorn the salvation that's been given to us. That has been brought to us by this grace that appears to us in the form of a crying baby in a manger. We are free. We don't have to worry about trying to win something or achieve something. We're free to adorn something, to show something. That's the freedom Paul speaks of in Galatians. But quickly, let me hasten to the last lesson in the text, which is, comes in verse 13. <clears throat> which is a lesson about our joyful anticipation. Notice what he says, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Another way in which you can adorn the doctrine of God in your life. I think Paul here is pinpointing the perhaps the most profound way. Is by gloriously, uh, hopefully, looking forward to this appearing, the second appearing. Of this God, this Savior, Christ in the world. Looking forward to the second coming of this Savior. This is what this grace does. It teaches us, it disciplines us to look hopefully for this glory yet to come. This life in this present world, as he says, we live soberly, righteously, and godly. We are fundamentally changed to live with this joyful anticipation, with this joyful eagerness that this second coming is near. And this is the grace that comes to us. What does it do? It reorients our gaze from earthly trivialities and temporalities into heavenly truths. It takes our eyes off of all of the temporal things that this world consists of and fixes them on the eternal things of God. And it retrains us, as he says here, to look eagerly and expectantly for this glory that is soon to be revealed. The glorious second appearing. And the thing is that just as unnoticed as his first appearing is, the second one is going to be just as unnoticed. We know that it's going to happen as a blink 
of an eye, as a flash in the night, as he says, a thief in the night. It's going to be quick and swift. And such is what makes us look forward to that day, which changes our lives by adorning the doctrine of God, by looking joyfully in anticipation towards that second coming. Such is what makes us peculiar people. As he says there in verse 14, he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people. It doesn't mean that we act weird. It doesn't mean that we're, uh, we, we can act weird. Sometimes we do, perhaps. I know I am sometimes. But that's not what that word means. Really what that word is meaning there is emphasizing is just a, a prized, a treasured, a sort of chosen possession of people. I love the fact that he says, I am going to purify those people into whom I want them to be. And we are most peculiar, I would say, when we hold this present life loosely, knowing that the eternal life to come is far greater. When we joyfully anticipate this blessed hope of eternal communion with God. This is what aids us, helps us, assists us in our uh, adoration of the doctrine of God by how we live. The grace of Christ's first appearing stirs us to joyfully anticipate his second appearing. And this is what we must hold in tension here at Christmas time. Yes, we are celebrating the birth of the Christ child. But we are also joyfully anticipating the coming of not a child, but of a king. Because when Jesus comes and returns, he's coming as the conqueror, as the king, on a white stallion. He's coming as the Lord of all creation. In his fullest of forms. And here we can see. That Paul is adamant about a life that adorns the doctrine of God. But I love the fact that he's leaning in all of the way through. He's leaning into the incarnation. Christmas time. It, we... We, it's so funny to me that we always keep our messages about the incarnation towards December. When in reality, this is what forms the entirety of our faith. The fact that this baby is not just a man and he's not just a God. He's God and man in the flesh. Something that many church fathers argued about for centuries. And we hold it true. Not professing that we understand it in full. But professing that we know that it is true. That he was God. And he felt everything that we felt. Um, and he was human in that way. But he was also God. Because he could bear all of the weight of our iniquity. And your iniquity. And the whole world's iniquity. And this is what we hold. This is what we profess. This is what we come to believe. That this grace that hath appeared will one day appear again. And at the second appearing, all wrongs will be made right. And all of the atrocities and sorrows of this world will be undone. And it will all be because this grace has appeared to us. Let us pray.